<clears throat> Do y'all like apples? Yeah. Well, let's say I have a big apple tree in our backyard. However, each year the apples are dry, wrinkled, brown, and pulpy. After several seasons of this, Aaron says it doesn't make any sense for us to have this big old apple tree in our backyard and we can't even eat any of these apples. Can you fix this? (laughs) Well, one day Aaron looks out the kitchen window to see me in the yard. And guess what I'm carrying? I've got branch cutters, a staple gun. I've got a ladder and two bushels of apples. And so I climb the ladder, I cut off all the pulpy apples, and I staple shiny red apples onto every branch of the tree. Now from a distance, our tree looks like it has a beautiful harvest. But if you were my wife, what would you be thinking of me in that moment? If a tree produces bad apples year after year, there is something drastically wrong with its system, all the way down to its roots. I won't solve the problem by stapling new apples onto the branches, right? They also will rot because they are not attached to a life-giving root system. And next spring, I will have the same problem again. I will not see a new crop of healthy apples because my solution has not gone to the heart of the problem. If the tree's roots remain unchanged, it will never produce good apples. So turn in your Bibles this morning to Galatians chapter 4. We're going to be reading verses 4 through 7. So Galatians 4, 4 through 7. And as you turn there, You're probably wondering, why am I giving this silly apple illustration? Some of you may, you've read Paul Tripp's Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. That's where I got it from. But um, Paul is writing to the Galatians because some false teachers have persuaded them to staple apples. Yeah, persuaded them to simply modify their spiritual behaviors as opposed to healing the roots of their spiritual lives. The opponents of Paul taught that Gentile, and that's non-Christian, non-Jewish Christians, cannot be justified persons unless they receive the circumcision according to the Mosaic law. In the Galatians, they had fallen prey to these false teachers, and Paul makes the case that works of the law are unable to change us if we're looking to do them in order to make ourselves right with God. So even if these false teachers look good, you know, morally good from a distance, they are rotten to the core. And so we're coming in at the end of this argument for justification by faith alone, where Paul makes clear that life under the Mosaic law, so life under the Mosaic law compared to life in Christ was a life of slavery. And he heightens this contrast by using the word adoption to describe the Christian's status and experience with God. So let's stand together and we'll read this from Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. 
And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray to you this morning through Christ, by the Spirit, and ask, Lord, that you would illumine the eyes of our hearts to be able to see what you want us to see in this text. Lord, teach us new things about how to think about you, how to think about ourselves. But Lord, more than just right thinking, I pray that you would get to our hearts and change us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So what are we going to be talking about today? I'm just going to throw it out there from the very beginning. The big idea that I want us to walk away with this morning is that the delight of adoption dispels the misery of slavery. The delight of adoption dispels the misery of slavery. And if that seems a little fuzzy right now, we're going to get at that to be able to understand it a little bit better by looking at three different headings. Number one, the life of the Son. Number two, the liberty of the Spirit. And number three, the love of the Father. So the life of the Son, the liberty of the Spirit, and the love of the Father. So let's start off by looking at the life of the Son. Look back at verse 4. Verse 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. What was the purpose of Christ's coming? How would you answer that? I'll mention two reasons the text highlights this morning, redemption and adoption. So let's look at redemption first. Now, Christ, he came to rescue us, right? But more than that, he came to redeem us. Do you know what redemption means in this text? For the Galatians, redemption ordinarily, it ordinarily referred to the release of a slave by the payment of a price. So if someone was willing to make the payment, a slave's freedom could be purchased. And this is what Christ has done for us. Jesus paid the price for our freedom when he died on the cross. But what did Christ redeem us from? Christ redeemed us from the law with its deadly curse. Paul says Jesus was born under the law. That's important. This was necessary for his redemption to be effectual. Jesus' qualification to redeem us from the law was that he kept it perfectly. Matter of fact, everything Paul has said about the life of the Son qualified him to be our Redeemer. His arriving at just the right time, his eternal divinity. Did you see where Paul said the Father sent him? His true humanity. We see that Paul says that he was born of a woman. And his perfect law-keeping, these qualified him to be our Redeemer. So, Christ redeemed us, but he redeemed us with a purpose in mind. Did you catch that in the text? Paul says this purpose was that we might receive adoption as sons. So let's look at adoption God's amazing grace was displayed when he released us 
from slavery, when he rescued us from the captivity of the law and redeemed us from its course, from its curse. As awesome as that sounds, Phil Riken says this, God did not stop there. Once Christ had gained our freedom, he gathered us into his family. He went beyond redemption to adoption, turning slaves into sons. And if you're a guest this morning or haven't heard much teaching on biblical sonship, please don't be put off by the, absent, the absence of the word daughter this morning. The reason for this is similar to why I feel extremely comfortable being called a bride of Christ as opposed to a groom of Christ. The historical metaphor of sonship as opposed to daughtership is used because in Paul's day, daughters did not receive an inheritance, but sons did. Paul was actually challenging the traditions of the day by incorporating the women of the church within the larger group of believers who receive all the privileges, benefits, and inheritance of the sons of God. So, ladies, if you're okay with being called a son, I'll be okay with being called a bride. But back to what we're trying to accomplish this morning. Everyone who trusts in Christ alone to be made right with God is a spiritual adopted son. However, we show that we do not understand what Christ has done on our behalf if we continue to serve God merely out of fear or duty. Our relationship with God is not a bondage but a freedom. For Christ has brought us from slavery to sonship. It does not depend on our works to stay within the membership of God's family, as if somehow we had to earn our keep. Now, how many of you grew up in the Methodist church? A good example of what this means in practical terms comes from the life of John Wesley, and he was a founder of the Methodist movement. <clears throat> One historian said that before Wesley came to Christ, now this is, this is pretty neat, before he came to Christ, he was a better Christian than most believers, at least as far as his outward behavior was concerned. You see, during his days at Oxford, he helped establish a group called the Holy Club. Now, the students in the Holy Club, they went to church. They studied their Bibles. They fasted and prayed. They went into the prisons and workhouses to do evangelism. They provided food, clothing, and education for the poor children of the city. Yet, all the while, they were spiritual orphans in bondage to their own religiosity. Wesley said it was not until years later that he finally came to trust in Christ only for salvation. And as he looked back on everything he had done for God before he came to Christ, this is what he said. I had the faith of a servant, though not that of a son. A Christian is someone like Wesley who has been brought from slavery to sonship. You see, the delight of adoption dispels the misery of slavery. Yet even after we become God's sons, we sometimes forget the freedom we have. Let's look at the liberty of the Spirit from verse 6. 
In verse 6 it says, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. What does that mean? Out of all the scholars I read on this verse, the most helpful for me was Dr. John Murray. Now, he was basically the LeBron James of 20th century theologians. Now, in his seminal book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, he said this about this verse. Those adopted into God's family are also given the spirit of adoption, whereby they are able to recognize their sonship and exercise the privileges which go with it. This morning, for some of you, this is new content you're trying to absorb. You may be feeling for the first time the sensation that you are a child of God. And for others of us, we may need the Spirit's help to recognize afresh our sonship. We may need the Spirit to liberate us from the spiritual slavery of our own making and remind us that we are no longer children of wrath, as Ephesians says, but children of God. Well, let me tell you about a couple who adopted their sons from an orphanage in Russia. Russell and his wife Maria at long last received the call that the adoption legal process was over. So they returned to Russia to pick up their boys. But they found that their son's transition from orphanage to family was more difficult than they had anticipated. They dressed the boys in outfits their parents had bought for them. They nodded their thanks to the orphanage personnel and walked out into the sunlight to the terror of the two boys. You see, they'd never seen the sun. And they'd never felt the wind. They had never heard the sound of a car door slamming or had the sensation of being carried down the road at 100 miles per hour. And Russell noticed that they were shaking. And while they were shaking, they were reaching back to the orphanage in the distance. Russell whispered to his new son, Timothy, that place is a pit. If only you knew what's waiting for you. A home with a mommy and a daddy who love you. Grandparents and great-grandparents and cousins and playmates and McDonald's Happy Meals. But all they knew was the orphanage. It was a terrible place. But they had no other reference point. I mean, it was home to them. Russell and Maria, they knew the boys had acclimated to their home, that they actually trusted them when they stopped hiding food in their high chairs. The boys eventually knew there would be another meal coming, and they wouldn't have to fight for the scraps. And that was their new normal. Russell says the boys are now thoroughly Americanized, perhaps too much so, because they can, they can recognize the sound of a, micro, uh, a, a, micro, um, a microwave ding from over 40 yards away. He still remembers, though, he still remembers, though, in Russia, those little hands reaching back to the orphanage. So let me ask you, are you reaching back Do you realize the new identity you have in Christ as a redeemed and adopted son 
of God. Do you know that you, are no, lo- you no longer have to justify your existence by how successful you are or how smart or well-behaved your children are? Sometimes we forget the infinite provision of our Heavenly Father, and we, like the little Russian boy, need to be reminded of our sonship. This is, the, this, this is the assurance that the Spirit brings to us, that liberating assurance, even in the most stressful of times. But what does this look like? I can't believe I'm about to share this, but bear with me. Have you ever been driving to work and the pressure of being the leader of your home has crushed you? It has crushed you. You've thought about all the ways you were failing as a father. Like no matter how hard you try to use the right words in addressing that issue with your teenage daughter, those words are used against you. Or that moment when you come to realize that the way you have been disciplining your children is not even close to getting to the heart of the issue. And because you have been trying to lead out of mere willpower and grit, you come to the place where it breaks you and you find yourself pounding on the steering wheel and screaming cuss words at yourself, the situation, or possibly even God. So loud you feel as though you may have permanently damaged your vocal cords. Have you ever been there? Yet even when we get to the very edge of our functional disbelief in God in these types of moments. Some of us will hear the prayerful words coming out of our mouths. Father. Father. I can't do this on my own anymore. I need you. Help me. Please help me. I have turned from you, and I have tried to do this in my own strength. Please forgive me. I don't know what I was thinking, but thank you for reminding me I am yours. Father, please enable me to pursue godliness with a renewed vigor as I am empowered by the Spirit and resting in the finished work of Christ. That's just one way the spirit of adoption enables us to recognize our sonship and exercise the privileges which go with it. And Paul made this same point to the church at Rome in Romans 8.15 when he said, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba. Father. You see, the delight of adoption dispels the misery of slavery. See, we've looked at the life of the Son and the liberty of the Spirit. Now let's look at the love of the Father from verse 7. Verse 7 says, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Sonship means we are each an heir. The only reason a slave would have been adopted as a son would be because the wealthy father did not have a suitable heir. 
So the person in Paul's illustration has a legal title to all the father's estate because he is being treated as an only son. So what does that mean for you and me? As children of God, we ought to have a sense of confidence, even an appropriate boldness each and every day. We do not have to live in fear any longer, fear of man or fear of anything. I mean, think about it. Our Father owns the place. In some mysterious way, God will honor us as he honors his Son, Jesus Christ. We could pick our heads up because the love of the Father can remove the fear of not being fulfilled or the fear of not being approved, which is at the root of much of our disobedience. J.I. Packer says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much they make of the thought of being God's child and having God as their father. Paul tells us in this verse that we are no longer a slave, but a son. At the core of your relationship with God, do you see him as a loving father or a slave master whipping you into conformity to the law? Allow me to illustrate this with two scenarios of sonship to help you answer that question. So son number one, he's sleeping in his bed. And his father knocks on the door. And he says, wake up, boy. We got work to do. The son doesn't awake immediately. And the father, enraged at the son's disobedience, barges through the door with a bucket of cold water, and he throws it on his son. And the son awakes instantly in shock and anxiety as the father goes on to say, I told you to get up, and I meant it. Get ready fast and meet me outside. We have a lot of work to get done today. We have to rake the leaves and cut the grass, and we got to wash the truck before 2 p.m. Hurry up, boy. The son, fearing to ask, but asks anyways, may, may I please eat breakfast before I start helping you? The father answered reluctantly, yeah, but make it quick. There might be a Pop-Tart or some cereal left in the pantry. So let me ask you, how will this son's view of his father affect the way he goes about doing what his father expects of him? How will this son's view of his father affect the way he goes about doing what his father expects of him? Son number two, he is sleeping in his bed. And suddenly he awakes because of a smell, a good smell. He thinks, is that bacon? I wonder what's going on downstairs. So he gets dressed quickly. He walks down the stairs into the kitchen, and he sees his dad putting the finishing touches on the morning spread. On the kitchen table is eggs just the way he likes them. Bacon, blueberry pancakes, and fresh fruit already cut up. The son was amazed by this sight and excited. He ran to his father and he asked, did you do this all because of my good report card? His dad looked him in the eye and he said, no, son, that's not why I fixed that breakfast for you. The boy, still a little puzzled, 
He asked this, did you do it because I did all of my chores this week like the way that you asked me to do them? The father said, no, that's not why. Now, the boy was still curious, as little boys can be, trust me, and asked, well, what's the special occasion? His father got down to eye level with his son, and he put both hands on his son's shoulders, and he said to him, I did this just because I love you. And while they ate, the father listened to his son, and the son listened to the father. And when they finished their food, the father said to the boy, Son, we have a lot of work to do, get done today. We have to rake the leaves, cut the grass, and wash the truck by 2 p.m. Let's get to work. And so I'll ask you again, how will this son's view of his father affect the way he goes about doing what his father expects of him. This is what Paul is driving home in Galatians 4-7, the end of our passage today. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. As children of God, we have family privileges infinitely greater than the second son in that, in that illustration. Infinitely greater. Our Father cuts us off from the family of Satan. He gives us freedom to call him by his fatherly name. He gifts us with the spirit of adoption, amen. He grants us likeness to himself and his son. He especially strengthens our faith through his gifts of promises and prayer. He comforts us with his love and pity and moves us to rejoice in intimate communion with him, in intimate communion with his son, in infinite communion with his spirit. He offers us spiritual liberty, delivering us from the world and all of its temptations, persecutions, and threats. He provides everything that we need as his children, both physically and spiritually, and he will protect us from what can ultimately harm us. Can you feel what John was trying to get across in 1 John 3.1? Behold, look and see at how great is the love of the Father and how he has lavished it on us that we should be called children of God. You see, the delight of adoption dispels the misery of slavery. So I, I've tried to persuade you in how to think about yourself and how to think about God as we have looked at the life of the Son, the liberty of the Spirit, and the love of the Father. But I also want you to do something this week. In the coming days, I want you to think about the roles, responsibilities, and even your behavior patterns, and simply ask yourself this question. Am I acting like a slave who is afraid of God, or like a child who is assured of my Father's love? So I'll conclude with this. Earlier, I gave an example of how the Spirit can enable us to cry, Abba, Father even after pounding the steering wheel in sin. Do you know that we have a record of Jesus crying out, Abba, Father? 
is just hours before he was crucified. Mark tells us that, he, that they went to a place called Gethsemane. Do you remember? It's when Jesus said to the, the disciples, sit here while I pray. And then he took Peter and James and John, but he started to feel something. He began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And the text says that he went a little further and he fell on the ground. He didn't take a knee. He didn't bow down. He fell to the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And Jesus said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Why was Jesus in such distress? I mean, just think about what he endured from the time he cried out, Abba, Father, in that prayer, until he rose from the grave. The curse, the mocking, the beating, the humiliation, the pain, the suffering, being bound to the cross, the abandonment. He cries out, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And in thinking about all that, I'll leave you with this quote from Derek Thomas when he said this. The one who was a son became a slave in order that those who were slaves might become sons. Let us pray.